Welcome into the NHL at the Ring podcast. Dan Rosen here, Sean Rourke out there, and Sean. The draft lottery was Friday, and we got a little bit of a chaos, didn't we? A little fun for the draft lottery intrigue, don't you think? There's nothing better than chaos. Look, I understand the traditionalists in our league who who want certainty and believe that teams should be rewarded for uh, finishing last or finishing near the bottom. And that, you know, that's the way that you rebuild a team. If you're not very good, you get high draft picks and you become very good. And a lot of teams have done that, right, in our league. The Pittsburgh Penguins did that. Uh, the Chicago Blackhawks did that. The Tampa Bay Lightning, they've all done that, right? But look, we're still talking about it. If if the Detroit Red Wings got the first pick, which is what they should have according to a lot of people, gotten because they were the worst team and by far the worst team and need the most help, we'd be all done with the draft. We would move on. We'd be thinking about, you know, when the season's going to start. But now we have these two tracks that we're going to run along for the next month and a half to two months. We're going to have the playoffs, the play-ins and the playoffs, and we're going to have who's going to get that number one pick. And and I think it's brilliant. Like, as you're watching those five-game series and the play-in series – you know, and and teams start to fall out, you're going to be like, well, what if they have the number one pick? And where does he fit in? And what are we, you know, what is that team going to look like? And if some of the favorites are the teams that get knocked out, then you have this whole new Pandora's box of, oh my God, Alexi Lafreniere is going to play with Patrick Kane or Alexi Lafreniere is going to play with Austin Matthews. So I, I think it's brilliant. And it's funny, too, because I was thinking about it, too. So a team could get knocked out in three games, too. And then the storylines continue with that team until we know. I mean, each team that gets knocked out is going to have a 12.5% chance to get this thing, to get the number one pick. And it very well could be a team that would have was a lock to make the playoffs. Not the Montreal Canadiens or the Chicago Blackhawks, but, but a team like, I mean, who knows? It could be the Pittsburgh Penguins, a team that was a lock to make the playoffs. In fact, uh, and we'll touch on this with uh, our first guest, Mike Morial. We should also mention, by the way, we're having Mike Morial on. He's uh, our colleague at NHL.com, does the NHL Draft Class podcast, big into the draft for us, also covers the Devils. And Rick Peckham, longtime broadcaster with the Tampa Bay Lightning, and before that, the Hartford Whalers, who got the honor, is going to be going uh, in the Hall of Fame honor with the Foster Hewitt Memorial Award. So those will be our two guests. But before we get there... Sean, I got a mailbag question this week, and we'll touch on this with Mike Morial too, uh, asking who would be the best team or teams for Lafreniere of the 16 that are remaining. And there's some great chaos there, too. You've got the Pittsburgh Penguins. I mean, they could get it. And then you have the Ramuski connection with Crosby and Lafreniere. You've got the Edmonton Oilers. Imagine Lafreniere playing with Connor McDavid. And, of course, the hometown team, the Montreal Canadiens. I'm curious. What's your team or teams that you look at and say, man, that would be fun if he went there? How about, you know, the Toronto Maple Leafs and, and all, Why not? The young talent, all the young <laughs> talent they have there and, and building, you know, what could be a dynasty. I, and again, look, I, I think that is the beauty of this. You could go through all 16 teams and you could be like, here's what an impact player, a potential Sidney Crosby Alex Ovechkin, Connor McDavid type first number one pick, you know, not a a, a debated one. This is a clear cut, possibly, you know, a franchise altering pick. And you can be like, what if we add him to the mix there? You know, what if he goes to Arizona 
and Taylor Hall stays, and that team's gone from being, you know, forgotten about for several years to being one of the most exciting teams in the league. So again, to me, that is the beauty of this. You know, when when and we almost forget it's been so long when the NFL came back and they did their draft. Part of the beauty of it was that not that the draft changed, but that it was presented in such a different way, and we saw all these different things. I, I think the NHL has done that, but in a different way, in reimagining how the draft can happen and and just extending that news cycle for another two months. Look, we want people to talk about the NHL and they're talking about it. We're talking about it six days after it happened because it's, it's important and it's not six days. It only feels like six days. It was on Friday. So um, <laughs> it's close, but uh, uh, look, we're, we're still talking about it. And I, I think that's a wonderful thing. You know, where they're also, they're talking about it in Detroit, but I don't know if they're talking about it in such a positive way because there was no guarantee that they were going to win the draft anyways. How many no. teams since we've gone to the draft lottery have been the worst team in the league and have won the have won the lottery? It almost never happens. And I think that's a good thing. I, I think, you know, when you think back to some of those real tank jobs, the the tank job for Mario Lemieux, the 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 when Buffalo and Arizona were, you know, trying to lose games to get that number one pick, that's no good. Like, no. there should be there should be no guarantee that if you're the worst team in the league, you get the first pick. Now, look, dude, I want to Detroit to slide to number four. No, um, you know, maybe they should be guaranteed the number two pick. I don't know how all that works, but. I don't think that it should be a slam dunk that they get the number one pick and, and it hasn't been. And I think that's a wonderful thing. Yeah, no, it's not that they didn't get the one. I think it's that they slid to four, like you said, and they also, they had the fourth best odds last year and they dropped to six, but Hey, that's the luck of it right now. And you have the Los Angeles Kings and good for them. Right. I mean, they were in the four spot, I believe, and they jumped up a couple of spots. So they get the number two pick in their prospect base, which is already very good. And they're very much into their rebuild. Now they're going to get a stud at number two, and and they they know that pretty much that's the good position I think for the Kings too in this draft is they know even though they don't know the team they know whoever has number one is going to pick Lafreniere so they can kind of analyze everybody else they don't have to worry about well I don't know even last year it was Hughes or Kako Kako or Hughes right I mean it's not so much it's a slam dunk this year so the Kings move up they get number two and now they can really analyze a couple of guys that they want to pick, eliminating Lafreniere probably. Yeah, and who knows, maybe Detroit at number four gets a better pick than L.A. at number two, right? You go through the drafts, and, and we've done it at the NHL for for this whole pause, is look at drafts in the past and kind of try and reimagine them and, and think about all the guys that were at number four or number seven that ended up being way better than number two, right? Um, or number one for that matter. So right. to a degree, it's a crapshoot and, and, you know, it's all going to play out over the next four or five years, but we're going to argue about it for a long time. And, and I think debate is what we want to create right now. And that's certainly what's happening. Before we bring in Mike, we definitely need to mention, though, there's a lot of reports out there as we are recording this Wednesday morning, a lot of reports out there about the hub cities for the return to play scenario. And it looks like Vegas is out. It looks like Vancouver is out. And last week, we probably thought those two could have been slam dunks. But now it's looking like Toronto and Edmonton. And again, by the time you listen to this, it might be official. But right now, uh, we're, we're, we're going off of some reports that we have. It looks like Toronto and Edmonton, two Canadian cities, but I like it because it's an East and a West 
and you're going to have the, the there's going to be no issues with television times and when are games going to be starting. I was a little concerned, Sean, when it was considered two Western Conference cities, uh, plus one team would be playing in their home market. So, and that they're going to be in the bubble, but they'd be in their home market. So, looks like Toronto and Edmonton right now. Why were you concerned about TV times? What do you have to do, Dan? Well, it's a matter of when they're going to be starting the games. Like, you know, I mean, I'll watch any time, but not everybody's going to watch every time. I I think most people, I know for a fact, I'd be watching games that start at 11 o'clock at night. But look, things have moved. When you think about all the details that have gone into trying to get this on track and and hopefully to start training camps and, 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 you know, 10, 11 days, they're looking at July 10th, and then three weeks after that to start the season in these bubbles and, and, and play out the tournament. But there's so many moving pieces, and, and, and the world changes. You turn on the news, and the world's changed overnight. When you wake up at whatever time it is, and you turn on the news, and you're like, wow, things are so different from yesterday. And, and places that seem to fit very well no longer fit very well. When we started this, it would be impossible to think – of putting the bubbles in New York and Boston. And if you were going right. to do it by straight numbers right now, where would you go? You'd go New York and Boston. Now those trains left the, the, the station a long time ago. You can't switch in the middle. So they had 10 cities and they, they placed their bets on 10 cities and said, these are the ones that we think are going to be the cities that are our best opportunity to do it with infrastructure, with numbers, with everything else. And they've slowly been whittled away either because of numbers, because of the governments in those cities saying we don't really want to do this. And they've left themselves enough. So now there's four or five cities left and they can, they can choose from those. And, and for everything, infrastructure, again, number of infections, everything, it, it, it truly looks like Toronto and Edmonton are going to be the, the cities that best fit all the criteria that, that the NHL needs to make the tournament happen. No, no doubt about it. Stay tuned for something official on that. But let's get back to talking prospects and the draft and the draft lottery. We'll bring in Mike Morial. He's the host of the NHL Draft Class podcast, along with Adam Kimmelman. Does all the draft stuff for us, also covers the Devils. Mike, or shall I say Mr. Morial, how you doing, man? I'm doing all right, Dan, Sean. Glad to be on the show. I believe this is this, my second uh, appearance on the show, so I am privileged and honored. No longer a first-time caller. It's got to be a little different for you. Usually by this time in the year, you're completely wiped out. We've just finished the draft and you've been going hard at prospects for several months now, but uh, different world we live in and the draft's going to be at a later date and things have been spread out a little bit more. So maybe a little bit fresher than normal, but I would imagine that the, um, that the first phase of uh, the draft lottery and everything that went along with that has uh, it seemed a little bit like uh like regular draft coverage and the intensity of it. It's been strange and, and odd, uh, no doubt, Sean. But, uh, you know, we're just plugging away like everyone else at, at .com, uh, it, it seems. And I'm sure you guys kind of feel the same way. I mean, we're just as busy, you know, putting together stories, thinking of stories, uh, making our phone calls and doing our due diligence uh, on my side of things, you know, reaching out to, to NHL scouts and, Obviously, uh, I got a plug and, and obviously a two thumbs up always to NHL Central Scouting and the job that they do. And they're always available uh, to us uh, at .com for discussions and, and to, 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 lend a, to lend a hand with uh, prospects that they've seen. So I owe a lot to them and what they've been able to do uh, for us, particularly in a season that's uh, as unpredictable 
as this one. But, you know, you go back to the lottery and, and how that all transpired. It was such an unusual event. But I guess I'm in the minority here, boys. And, and you know, everyone knew the circumstances of how this lottery w- was going to be held. Uh, this hasn't been an easy season for anyone. And, um, you know, the league has been doing, you know, doing everything possible to provide some form of entertainment and, and something for the fans to talk about since the NHL pause on March 12th. And a lot of very smart people with the aid of uh, NHL general managers are doing everything possible to make this right. And, and I believe the intrigue created by this lottery format will, is going to be unprecedented in, in NHL history. To think, to think a team losing in a Stanley Cup qualifier round is going to have a shot at a franchise player such as Alexi Lafreniere is, is quite a consolation prize uh, for that fan base. So it's been a busy time. I, I thought the lottery was real intriguing and I'm excited to, to, to see who's going to get that number one pick. So it's all good from this end, Sean. Look, I love it because it's a little bit of chaos, Mike, and, and mm-hmm. that's always good. Uh, but in a, the niceties are over. I want to put you right on the spot. I got this question <laughs> in my weekly mailbag. What is the most suitable and exciting team in play for Alexi Lafreniere? The 16 teams that still have the opportunity, who's the, the top two or three for you that it would create a lot of more intrigue and be an exciting story? I do have a team in mind there. Uh that would certainly benefit from having Lafreniere. I, I know, Dan, you actually wrote about two interesting scenarios this morning in your over-the-board mailbag piece, and I think it's it's worth repeating. Uh, you know, wouldn't it be something if the Canadians lost to the to the Penguins and won that number one pick? If their French-Canadian player would have capper to the most unpredictable season uh, this year, and, and Alexi would go to his childhood team, a, a team he watched with his mom and dad on television throughout his childhood. I learned a lot through the, the many interviews I've had with Alexi this this season that his mom, Natalie, you know, grew up a huge hockey fan and in particular a Montreal Canadiens fan, lived not too far away from, you know, the, Montreal and, and where he grew up. And when Alexi was two years old, he'd flip through Natalie's fantasy hockey magazines that she had. And no, look, Alexi would have been the number one pick at Bell Center in Montreal if the draft were held there. So maybe it would be proper justice and icing on the cake. And then the other hypothetical, uh, you know, the last player to win the CHL player of the year, two straight seasons was, was Sid. And, and wouldn't it be something if Lafreniere became only the second player in history to win a, to win a second straight CHL player of the year this season is chosen by the Penguins. And even better, Lafreniere gets to play beside Crosby, as you mentioned in your piece there, Dan. And, you know, that would be fantastic. But I, I think the team that would benefit most from the presence of Lafreniere among the 16, uh, is the Minnesota Wild. My reason is twofold. One, the Wild needs star power in the lineup. What, what always seems to be the biggest question about the Wild come late May and April, you know, do they have enough big game players on offense to get the job done? And second, you know, Alexi is, is a player who would present those diehard fans something to sink their teeth into, right? His jersey would fly off the shelves. He's, he's such a unifying athlete. He's, he's not just a great hockey player, guys, but a great funny teammate. I, you know, I recall interviewing several Canadian players at the World Junior Summer Showcase last August, asking them, you know, about Lafreniere's personality. And they told me he's one of the funniest guys in the locker room. So he he would immediately get a shot in a top six role alongside either, you know, Eric Stahl, Joel Eriksson or whether it be Alex Galchenyuk, maybe perhaps someone else. I know that, that the the Wild have some some talented centers in the prospect pipeline. So 
to me, I think I think the Minnesota Wild be a team that would really, really benefit from an Alexi Lafreniere. Mike, why are you using logic? We don't deal with logic. <laughs> we don't deal with logic, especially when it comes to when it comes to the draft lottery. We know the two teams that he's going to go to and that he should go to because the fix is in. The Toronto Maple Leafs are going to get him, yeah. mm-hmm. and if they don't, the Chicago Blackhawks are going to get him. <laughs> Well, I, I do think that the Canadians might be in there too, no? Uh, well, of course, but uh, I'm just saying, look, they're the, they're the favorites to get them because they get everything, right? They get everything. Of course they do. Of course. But just think about think about Alexei in either Toronto, which we can make all the jokes we want, is, is a huge media market and is starving for a winner and already has some incredible young talent, or as the next generation behind Taze and Kane in Chicago. And, and it certainly can happen. I, to me, that's the beauty of this is we can spend however long it takes to get to phase two of the draft. When we find out what, which team was the placeholder team, which team was team E and, and debate where he would fit best and, and, and just be tantalized by the opportunities that are out there for him to join some teams that are either on their way to hopefully greatness or are at the peak of who they are now and can extend their window by adding a, a, another franchise player into a pipeline that's already full of them. No doubt about it. And, and, you know, on those teams that you mentioned, you have such a great veteran presence there, Sean. I, you know, I think having Alexi come in, look, it, it's not going to be easy. I don't care, you know, how talented a player you are. You know, we've seen it. Dan saw it last year with Capo Caco. You know, Jack Hughes, they struggled a little bit um, as seven, as 18-year-old players. Um, some for some number one overall picks uh, benefit from, you know, what teams they're going to. And, you know, you look at a Connor McDavid, and he really excelled his first year. But I think everyone kind of knew that that was a generational-type player. And it was a, a generational was a, was a term we kind of used a little loosely, right, for almost two, three straight years, you know, with the Austin Matthews and – the Jack Eichels and, and the Connor McDavid's coming out, you know, even Rasmus Dahlin a couple of years ago, right? Uh, the fervor and excitement that uh, centered around Dahlin and what he was able to bring. And then to have Buffalo take him was, was such a feather in their cap along the blue line. So I think you do get some of those number one picks that go to teams that, you know, desperately need some talent. And then in this case, uh, you know, one of these teams, well, like you said, whether it be a Chicago Blackhawks, where you have a nice veteran core there, and maybe some of these other teams that, uh, whether it's the Penguins or uh, another another team with some some high caliber top six forwards that, that are veterans and that have played in the league, that have been in the league for a while, can help Lafreniere along, and and that would only benefit him. So I think if he's if he's given or if he's uh, drafted by a team that desperately needs, uh, you know, a, a, a top six left left wing. In some cases, he might even be playing first line left wing for some of these clubs. But then if you put him on a team that has that veteran presence that he's able to learn and take a lot from, I think he'll also benefit from that. So it's two wins for Alexi Lafreniere in that case. Let's move on to the number two pick, Mike, though. The Kings get it. We know that's happening. Um, their prospect pool looks terrific right now. And you had them selecting Quinton Byfield in your mock draft. Why? There's some other great options, obviously. There's a great debate on who the Kings could pick there. It's not as much of a lock as the number one pick. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about the Kings and why you, you put Byfield in there. 
when I'm thinking about the mocks, particularly at the top there, I'm always looking best available. So uh, Quentin Byfield, to me, has everything a rebuilding team is looking for. Great size at 6'4", 215. He's got skill, a, tr- a tremendous skating ability for a player his size. His ceiling is extremely high, Dan, and I don't think he's truly tapped his true his potential in, in his blend of physical power, size, speed, and skill. And the toughest thing for scouts, and I know you guys know this, is predicting, right? Predicting two, three, four years down the road of where a player is going to fit into your into your culture. Let's face it, right? This is going to be a franchise-defining type player, particularly this high in the draft. You would expect him to be that. And I think Quentin Byfield has all those characteristics. Um, he told me and colleague Adam Kimmelman on NHL Draft Class uh, uh, during one of our shows that he, he's been focusing on getting stronger since the season ended with the goal of being able to handle physical play in the NHL next season. Byfield has the look of a franchise center, Dan, and the Kings will be able to, they'll be able to build around him with, with veterans, Anze Kopitar and Jeff Carter, you know, each advancing in the, into the later stages of their NHL career. So a left shot center, powerful, powerful skater, breakaway speed, exceptional skill set at 82 points, including 32 goals and 45 games last season. Hey, look, you know, you know, I, I like Jamie Drysdale of, of Erie, a uh, real special player. Tim Stutzla could be available there as well, obviously. Um, but for me, Quinton Byfield has such a ceiling here that I don't think we've really seen yet. So if you're going to kind of project and just now knowing what he's capable of doing at that size, I think it's a no-brainer there to, to maybe choose him at number two here. How about the goalies? I'm the goalie guy on this podcast. I always want to talk goalies. And and to me, in the draft, goalies are such a, a wild card, right? We've been doing all these redrafts of all all the great drafts that have gone on. And, you know, when you redraft Dominic Koshik's in the top three of whatever draft he was in and, you know, Patrick Waugh. But a lot of those guys, Martin Brodeur, none of them were in the top of their drafts because people are afraid to draft goalies. And then you think about some of the goalies that were drafted early and have been, you know, not as good as as advertised, right? Mm, uh, Rick mm. DiPietro jumps to mind, uh, a couple other guys like that. So we all know that Askarov is is kind of the big name in this draft. Where where do you see him going, and, and what do you think is that right window to take a goalie with how much of a a wild card they can be in their development? That's a great point, Sean. You know, drafting a goalie is great. You, you draft them based on their talent, their size, the structure, and and what they've been able to do. But at the same time, you have to let that talent, size, structure, technical development kind of just boil over for a few years, right? We've seen some of the better goalies. And I always pinpoint, and one of my great comparisons with uh, Askarov is is uh, Vasilevsky for uh, the Tampa Bay Lightning and, and how they groomed Vasilevsky. Um, you know, Vasilevsky, they selected him number 19 in 2012. You know, the, the Lightning showed a lot of patience and belief in him, allowing him to develop for two seasons in Russia before bringing him to North America in 14-15, and I think it worked. As far as where Askarov should or maybe go in this draft, it depends on, uh, on where he is on draft boards, uh, particularly those clubs choosing 9-15, to which is where I think he'll fit. Most clubs, you know, 
have the list based on best available, as we mentioned. Uh, I think a club with multiple picks, guys, or a club choosing in that range will select him. There's no question he's one of the more athletic goaltenders available in this draft. He's got a proven track record. He's one of these players that's that's always been on the young. He's been the youngest player on his team, so that's not unfamiliar to him. He's got a shelf full of medals. Hey guys, six international tournaments Saskarov has competed in. He's come away with six medals. Uh, he brings the size that compete. He has all you know the goaltending tools that he needs to be a number one in the National Hockey League. Uh, I've spoken to several scouts. They're very high on him. Uh, NHLs amateur scouts as well who consider him in that range that I mentioned in the 10 to 15 range. So, um, you know, he could be the second goalie in 15 years to be chosen among the top 10 selections in the NHL draft. And he'd become the third Russia born goalie in NHL history to be chosen first in his position, uh, joining Samson off of the capitals. Uh, I believe it was 22 in, in 2015 and, and then Vasilevsky. So, a lot to like about, uh, you know, Askarov and, and, and the caliber of talent he possesses. But you're right, Sean. There, you know, in addition to Askarov, there are, there are a few other goalies in this year's draft that maybe some teams, if they don't get a chance to draft Askarov, or maybe they don't consider drafting a goalie that high, and we've seen that before. There are several other goalies uh, in, in this draft. Uh, you know, I look at a Nicholas Dawes, Dawes in Guelph, uh, the Ontario Hockey League, and a Drew Cremeso, who I'm really fond of for uh, the USA Hockey National Team Development Program. Uh, Dawes was number one on Central Scouting's list of North American goalies, and, and Comesso was, uh, was number two. So some real, good, some real good impact players in that regard, particularly with the goaltending. Mike, it's interesting. A team that could obviously use a goaltender in their stable is the Detroit Red Wings. They're not going to pick one at four, I don't imagine. But how big of a hit? is it for the Red Wings based on their prospect pool that they didn't get the number one pick that they did drop to number four? Yeah, it, it is a bit of a hit, particularly, you know, for a team that's missed out on the playoffs three years, uh, three straight years after, you know, qualifying 25 straight, you know, the Red Wings can use a little star power in their lineup. Obviously, Alexi Lafreniere would have been just that for, for them. But we all know, you know, GM Stevie Y has a little flair for the dramatics, you know, shocking the draft world last year with, with the pick of Maurice Sider at number six. Um, so, yeah, Lafreniere would have made a nice compliment for Dylan Larkin on the top line. Uh, you know, on top of that, he has a little familiarity playing alongside forward prospect Joe Valeno, who's in the Detroit system. Uh, they played together at the World Junior Championship. But look, uh, Dan, you know, like I've said before, uh, this is a pretty deep draft. I think the Red Wings are going to get a, a, a an impact player here. Uh, in my mock draft, I had him taking, you know, a mobile puck-moving defenseman in Jamie Drysdale. I know they drafted Sider, you know, number six last year. But, you know, Stevie Wise, like I said, you, you just never know what he's going to do. I think a Marco Rossi, a, a pure centerman, played for Ottawa, you know, 120 points this year could be another option. But I just like the right-hand shooting defenseman. He's been compared to a Kale McCarr. Uh, Jamie Drysdale has uh, did some wonders uh, for Erie this year, uh, 47 points in 49 games. So while it would have been nice to get that number one, uh, the, the, the Detroit Red Wings are certainly going to get an impact player uh, at number four for sure. Is there a Stevie Y there? That's what Detroit got last time they had number four. That's right. Yeah, uh, they did, you know, and, and obviously if you're looking for some of those high impact fours, they, they will be there. Like I said, a Marco Rossi could be, could be there for them, Sean. And, 
look, let's face it. The Red Wings are rebuilding, right? They're in need help in just about every position. Dan, you mentioned goaltending. And you know what? That that might be their number one priority, this draft. And it it's not going to happen in the first round with that number four pick. But they're going to be they're going to draft a goalie somewhere in this draft. There, there is no absolutely no question about it. Um, you know, they they need talented offensive players to round out their top nine. And and like I said, an offensive defenseman to move the puck. So there's a lot of players that they can take at number four that can fill those roles. If not next season, Sean, it'll certainly be in two to three years. What about Stutzla, Mike? I mean, you mentioned him before. You had Ottawa taking him at number three in your mock draft. Um, tell me a little bit about Tim Stutzla uh, and, and the type of player he is and why you feel Ottawa would take him there at number three. Yeah, well, you know, I, I love Stutzla's speed. It's so impressive. He can fly. You know, his puck handling and vision, really excellent. He's, he's got, a, you know, a real good attitude. You know, we had him on our NHL draft class, uh, myself and colleague Adam Kilman interviewed him uh and you know he's quite the refreshing player i mean he not only is he a great kid a uh, great hockey player but he's great off the ice uh just a happy-go-lucky type of attitude very confident with the puck and you know what and i got this from from goren stube the director of nhl central scouting who you know i converse with uh, regularly about the european prospects on the draft board and and Stu told me that you know Stu's is a little bit cocky on the ice, but but it's it's in a positive way. He he's very he wants the puck and, and he'll look for the puck. He's, he he hunts pucks, and you know Ottawa's in need of impact players. I think Stutzla would fit that bill. He's got an excellent skill set, excellent playmaker with smooth hands. I think the best comparison that I can make uh, uh, for for Tim Stutzla guys is a Matthew Barzell type of type of play with the speed, the creativity he presents, but he's also kind of, you know, he, he wants to get into the corners. I think Stutzla too told us, which was interesting in our interview with him, uh, he played he played the left uh, left side, left wing with Mannheim in Germany all season long. When he played for Germany at the World Junior Championships, he played center. So he was able to play both those positions. I asked him, um, you know, which he prefers. And he told me whichever team does draft him, he'll mold himself or play whatever position he's needed. So he actually said, and I spoke to, to Mannheim's uh, general manager uh, a few months ago, and, and he told me too, he says, yeah, he played left wing, but he can see Stutzer playing center um, possibly th- you know, three, four years into his NHL career as he becomes accustomed to that two-way style game. Look, Mike, I could talk prospects all day with you. That's where I started my NHL career. And I could talk German prospects with you all day just to hear you say their names. Um, but we would be remiss before we let you go. You're a man of many hats. And the other hat you wear is you cover the Devils for us during the season. Clearly one of the most interesting storylines of the teams that are out of the playoffs. Where, where do they stand right now? They need a new GM or, or make Tom Fitzgerald the non-interim GM. Same thing with the coach. They have Elaine Nasruddin there, but they've not been shy about the fact that they're interviewing other people. Where do things stand now with the Devils as, as they look at a very long offseason? First, with, with, with regards to the coach, and let me, let me preface this, John, by saying that, you know, I, you know, following the Devils after the change in coaches uh, from John Hines to Elaine Nasruddin, and then uh, with the interim GM situation from Ray Shiro to Tom Fitzgerald, you know, I feel Nas has done an admirable job. I, you know, I'm not a prophet, but I've been around the league long enough to know this. You know, a coach is only as good as his players. 
sometimes a coach, you know, might be able to, to ring out a few more wins with lineup management and pushing the right buttons, but it all comes down to commitment and coaches and players being on the same page. And I thought, you know, Elaine Nazardine did a fantastic job down the stretch in 43 games since he took over the Devils, you know, had 46 points. They won 19 games. They were ranked 11th in the conference. They were number one on the penalty kill, number 16 on the power play uh, since Naz uh, came over. So it could be worse. Look, I know uh, we, we've seen reports that uh, the Devils are interviewing, um, you know, other coaching candidates. And, and in fact, it's probably not reports anymore. We've been had confirmation from Tom Fitzgerald that they have been interviewing. You know, we've heard rumors of Bruce Boudreaux, uh, uh, Gerard Gallant, uh, Peter Laviolette. Uh, I know the Devils reportedly spoke to Dor- uh, Stars assistant coach John Stevens. So there's a lot of people here uh, that they're, they're interviewing. But I think Elaine Nazardine is it should be given a, a you know a, a good shot, a good chance to to remain on as coach. And as far as Tom Fitzgerald goes, look, uh, it's not totally clear what the Devils are looking for in their next general manager. But whoever it is will need to be comfortable working with with the ownership group analytics and he'll need to be aggressive in making moves to make the club competitive again right away that's what we heard from uh co-owner josh harris it, you know that's not according to me that's that's according to ownership and I, I think fitzgerald has done everything he can or could to this point to get a real good look and to remain uh, as general manager he made a lot of trades leading up to the trade deadline Got, you know, there were a lot of players uh, that were pending unrestricted free agents, uh, you know, including Taylor Hall. And they were able to get a haul, <laughs> no pun intended for him. So um, I, I think in the long run, I like what Fitzy has done. I like his attitude towards what he needs to do to make the Devils a better team. And, you know, on top of everything, uh, he, he's played more than 1,000 games in the league, captain the Nashville Predators for four seasons. He's held executive roles with the Penguins. Um, so he's familiar with this role that he needs to do. And whenever we talk to him on conference calls, he knows exactly what, uh, you know, the situation where he stands, what he needs to do to maybe get the ball rolling with this. But we know there are other people out there, you know, Marty Bordeaux's name is always brought up. You know, Mike Gillis is another popular one. Dean Lombardi, will Bill Zito take a jump? Uh, Ross Mahoney from the Capitals, an assistant GM there now. Uh, would he make a move? Uh, so that there are other candidates that are out there but to me i think tom fitzgerald has done a fantastic job guys well mike definitely appreciate it dropping knowledge even dropping some promos for your podcast nhl draft class so thanks for jumping on with us all right thanks dan thanks sean always a pleasure guys stay safe great having mike on sean and certainly you got to check out his podcast uh, with adam kimmelman nhl draft class they have the whole draft covered got some great interviews on there too but Sean, he brings up some interesting stuff about the Devils, and it is a complicated situation because you have a general manager who's still an interim GM, as we were talking about, with Tom and Tom Fitzgerald, and they're interviewing coaches, but they have an interim coach in Elaine Nazardine. It's usually you'll have an interim coach, but the GM will be full-time, and he'll be deciding between the candidates and if the interim coach is going to be there. What coach wants to go there right now without the idea of who exactly is going to be his boss? And what GM doesn't want to pick his own coach, right? You, you, yeah. I, I think, you know, you, you see it a little bit. You saw it a little bit in Buffalo, right, with 
with uh, Kruger and, and Adams, right? And they seem to be on the same page, and, and that's why maybe that's going to work because the GM needs to go out and get the players that the coach believes will work in his system. So it, it really is a strange situation there. And then, you, you know, Mike mentioned that you have Marty Brodeur kind of, you know, the franchise icon kind of hanging over the whole thing as, you know, in the role that he's in, which is above all of that. So, um, but there's been rumors that, you know, maybe that's a job he would want at some point or would be suited for after he learns a little bit more. So, you know, there's a lot of questions to be answered there, but to me, it seems if you let Tom Fitzgerald handle the trade deadline and they, they move some key pieces, there, there's no doubt about that and didn't move some other pieces that they had hoped they would move. But if you, if you let him, handle the trade deadline and he doesn't me- he didn't mess it up to the point where you're like that's it we're done with you like at that point he should be able to execute his plan um and, and he should have that opportunity and then you know you name him the gm and then you can go on and, and you can pick a coach and mike talked about some of those candidates and they're very good and, and one he left off that kind of came out of the woodwork last week is is lindy ruff you know, who we both know very well from past yeah. stops and, you know, is kind of that throwback coach that, that maybe, you know, almost a Pat Burns type for the Bruins. I mean, for the Devils, if you're looking at their past and you want to compare coaches to who had success in the past. So it's going to be one of the, the best stories of the summer is, is how the whole management thing in New Jersey shakes out. But I also think Mike brought up an interesting point about Elaine Nazardine because he did a good job, right? Inherited a difficult situation there he's very close with john hines and didn't you know in fact thought that when he heard about hines getting fired a nazarene thought he was going to be gone too and instead he was promoted to the interim coach and and the team eventually started to thrive the goaltending improved mackenzie blackwood got better and the team started to thrive but i think one thing with new jersey and 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 we'll we'll get to I'll, i'll make this last point before we move on to our next guest rick peckham uh, broadcaster, longtime broadcaster with the Tampa Bay Lightning. I think one thing with the Devils is they need to be careful in terms of expectations because as it stands now, the two most important players on the team, other than, well, the three most important players on the team, they've got Blackwood in goal and Nico Heischer and Jack Hughes. You build a team from goalie down through, out through the middle Hughes is still developing in the NHL, and so is he sheer. So I think you have to be careful with expectations if you're the ownership, no matter what decisions are made here. Yeah, and I think you need a coach that's going to be good with those young players, and I think that's where Naz fits, right? He yes. was kind of yeah. He was kind of the good cop for a long time you know, on whatever staff he was on and he can relate to the young players. And that's what you need with, with the players that they have now. I don't know that you can bring in a disciplinarian who's going to install a system and hold everybody super accountable. And, and that's the way you let the young players on that team flourish. I, I think it has to be more of a modern um, type team where, you know, you're, you're concentrating on player development while you're trying to win. So, um, you know, maybe it's, it's the same thing for our next guest that, you know, he witnessed in Tampa Bay as as they went from, yeah. you know, bringing in Steven Stamkos and, and everything that went on there to developing into a team that could be far more structured as it got older. No question about it. That next guest is Rick Peckham. We were lucky enough to catch up with him. Foster Hewitt Memorial Award winner for 2020. Here's that interview with Rick Peckham. Rick, thank you so much for jumping on with us. Congratulations to Foster Hewitt Memorial Award. I mean, you think of some of the past winners there, Bob Cole, John Davidson, Mike Emmerich, Danny Gallivan, Rick Generet, Bob Miller. 
uh, Dave Strader. Now you're going to be on that list. What does that mean to you? What does it feel like? Wow. Yeah. Plus uh, the uh, the man himself, Foster Hewitt. You know, the greatest uh, hockey right. broadcaster of all time. Uh, it is overwhelming. It's it's something that uh, you know when the day hit on Monday and the announcement came out and I started to hear from people. It just the magnitude of that uh, really sunk in. And uh, in many ways, I still can't believe it. It's uh, it gets you thinking about the past and your journey. And from the beginnings, it, you really never thought that anything like this would ever happen. So it's it's been quite overwhelming. Where did where did the journey start for you? You know, all of us that are involved in hockey media had you know somebody that we looked up to, and, and you know somebody that we wanted to be. What what was the the start of that journey for you? Well, Sean, it started for me. I was uh, growing up in Dayton, Ohio. We had a little youth hockey going in, in the area, and, and the Dayton Gems of the IHL were were active, but I wasn't really following hockey. And then I saw the Bobby Orr and the Bruins on CBS one day in a Sunday afternoon, and uh, you know, I thought, wow, I'm going to start paying attention to this. Became an instant Bruins fan. This was the year they won the Cup in 1970, and by then I already had... Uh, strong feelings about uh, pursuing a career in, in play-by-play in sports. And, in, you know, I'd followed a lot of different sports and just uh, started to focus more on hockey. In my years uh, at Kent State, uh, we had a club hockey program and produced three NHL announcers and Paul Staggerwald, uh, you guys know very well with the Penguins and his long career there. Mike Forens, who was with uh, Hartford and Washington and Dallas. And, and I got to follow those guys. So, that's really where it started, and it seemed like that was the path that made the most sense to me, and, and here we are 42 years later, and it certainly worked out. And 42 years later, it seems to me that it's you're, you're uh, about to retire and um, call it a career in broadcasting. Why now? Why is the, the right time for you to, to do it after 42 years? And, and certainly, you know, to go out with the Foster Hewitt Memorial Award, I mean, what better way, right? Yes, Dan, I kind of, you know, looked at this year. I turned 65 in, at the end of March and uh, had thought about, you know, that's that's probably a good time. I think that as uh, we've added teams in the league and the travel has gotten a little more complicated, the schedule's gotten a little more compact in, in some areas, um, it's just something where I'm just asking myself, uh, you know, how many more of these uh, 1.45 a.m arrivals and hotels can I deal with and how many more years of that and uh, just thought it was a good time to step away spend more family time just kind of uh, you know looking back at, at 42 years it pretty much uh, uh, I had accomplished everything I was going to be able to do uh, in broadcasting and just thought that was the, the best path to go at this point. You know, when when you when you talk about forty two years, it, it's a long time, and in some ways, and I would imagine in other ways, it's a, a blink of an eye. But the league's almost unrecognizable from forty years ago, from four decades ago. To to you, and and this may be a very difficult question to answer, but to you, what's the biggest thing that's changed, and and maybe what's the thing that stayed the same? Wow, great question. I would say just the players have been the biggest change in terms of how big they are, um, how fast the game is played now. Um, the speed has been allowed to, it's been kind of cut loose, you know, as the game has been officiated differently. 
Uh, we saw that big change, of course, in 2005. And I would say that uh, just those physical factors of the game itself and how it's played is the um, uh, the biggest change. As far as uh, how it stayed the same, I think in many ways the hockey culture where it's team first. I mean, you know, it's, it's like a, a lot of other sports now where there's so much focus, there's more media and more focus on individual athletes and, and we all want to promote stars and so forth. But that, that team culture has really kind of made hockey unique among the major sports uh, to where you, you know, you're always thinking of your teammates. You're always, the plan is always to be a good teammate. And uh, I, I think that still is very strong as it exists today. Rick, do you have a favorite? I mean, you've called so many games. I'm curious if you have a favorite or a few favorite games that you ever called. Well, I think back to um, my second year in the in the NHL was with Hartford, and uh, that was the year that uh, the Whalers made the playoffs for the first time, 1985-86. <clears throat> we had a memorable Game Seven with Montreal Canadiens. Of course, ended up winning the Cup that season, and I think many folks in Hartford among the players and broadcasters as well felt and rightly so that um, they really had a chance had they gotten through that series to go on and they could have been that Canadiens team and won the cup and they really had a team that was on the up and coming and some stars like Ron Francis and uh, Kevin Deneen and Sylvain Turgeon were, were developing uh, youngsters like Ulf Samuelson and Ray Ferraro and uh, a solid goaltender in Mike Liud who had come on board midway through the year before. It was all coming together. Stu Gavin was another big addition to that team. And uh, they could have done it. And that game seven, they lost it overtime. Claude Lemieux scored an overtime in that one. Just the atmosphere at the Montreal Forum was certainly uh, something as a young broadcaster I'll never, ever forget. I think the first game that the Lightning played in the Ice Palace, now known as Amelie Arena, after spending a year in pretty much a cow barn at Expo Hall and three years in the baseball stadium, which is now Tropicana Field, they finally had a home of their own downtown Tampa, which they still uh, call home. And that game stands out. And uh, certainly many along the run to the Stanley Cup in 2004, the last one I broadcast was uh, game three of the second round series with Montreal, the Lightning swept the Canadiens. And in that particular game, Vinny LeCablier had a spectacular tying goal deflecting in a shot through his legs uh, to tie the game with 16 seconds to go. And Brad Richards banked a shot in off Jose Theodore in overtime to win that game. So very spectacular individual performances, great drama, and games like that will stay with me for a long, long time. I have two Hartford questions I have to answer, ask you. One, where do you stand on the brass bonanza? Brilliance or overblown? <laughs> and two, you just mentioned all those guys that played on that Hartford team that all went on to have huge roles in the NHL. And you you didn't mention some. Joel Quinville was another one. Um, it all went on to be coaches, GMs. Mike Liu is one of the biggest uh, agents in, in the NHL. Did you have a sense that that was that special of a, a hockey mind type of team? I mean, all they all turned out to be very brilliant hockey people. Well, what was interesting about that team and the community, which, uh, you know, Hartford was, 
obviously the fan base tucked right between Bruin fans and Ranger fans, and it was a very difficult challenge for that market and that team under Howard Baldwin to survive and thrive in trying to make a new fan base. And all of those players were very community-minded. Phil Langan was the PR director who would um, have Joel or Ronnie or Dave Tippett uh, Dean Evison, so many guys that we could, you know, list forever and ever. Norm McIver now in management, the people like that. They're all part of the community effort. Uh, we'd be playing softball games. Gordy Howe was on our team as Gordy was still an ambassador with the Whalers, having carried over from the WHA days. And Gordy'd come out there, and and you know he he was just like the guy you who lived next door. He was that approachable, as we all have known through the years. And that community sense, I think, was was big with those guys. Plus, people like uh, Ron Francis, he got a securities license. He was selling securities while he was playing, you know, in the offseason. Joel Quenville was working for Leg Mason in the offseason. Dave Tippett was working with home builders. He was really into uh, building things. And so, you know, they, they developed other interests. They were smart enough. You could see that intelligence to knowing that they had to have something to fall back on at that stage of hockey with the money that they were making and uh, all very intelligent guys as, as Emil Francis put this group together uh, at that particular stage. As far as uh, Brass Bonanza, it's a love-hate relationship with me because when I was announcing in Rochester, the American League, the Binghamton Whalers were obviously their affiliate playing a tiny, dark, dim Broome County arena and we'd travel, you know, just a couple of hours down to, to play Binghamton. And quite often we played in the playoffs in those years. And you might get waxed eight to two or something. And you just heard nothing in your head but brass bananas on the bus ride home. And we're sick and tired of it. But then, of course, you know, the years in Hartford, um, you know, there were some glorious moments, especially with that 86 team and, and the next uh, year as well with a great regular season they had that, uh, it, uh, it was something that, you know, really I think the community rallied around. So it's it's got an interesting history to it, and I'm glad it's around because it really does link people back to those Hartford days. Rick, I wanted to ask you, 42 years in broadcasting, it's a lot of great players. Uh, any player for you that was maybe the most compelling to call his games, to watch and broadcast his games? Well, Kevin Deneen, I think from those years, pops up because he was just such a dynamic player and you guys know Kevin he's not a big man right he wasn't six feet tall yeah. he, he was not a, a strong brawny type of player and just his attitude and his fiery style of play I think made him stood out and he was a guy who was never afraid of the moment and he scored so many big goals uh, for the Whalers in his time there, and of course has gone on to to be a coach and a, you know certainly uh, the son of uh, Bill Deneen and a great hockey lineage. But um, he's one guy that certainly jumps out from those years, along with Ronnie Francis, who was just a machine in terms of production and very quiet about how he went about his business. And as as we all know, very smart and businesslike, and he was always like that around. Uh, his team and his teammates, you know, and it was 
while he was playing and having such great uh, years with the Whalers and obviously later on with the Penguins. As far as the Lightning are concerned, uh, players like a, uh, a Brian Bradley initially was such a star in the early years, and I came in year four of the Lightning franchise, and then, of course, you get to the Vinny LeCavalier years. And just what a marvelous talent and a big community-minded uh, uh, guy with a huge heart that uh, really stepped out on his own to, to create a lot of uh, community goodwill and, and his own foundation and so forth. And, you know, you get to the present time, and it's it's people like Victor Hedman, who's always got a smile on his face, has always had a great attitude from the day he stepped into the NHL and Steven Stamkos and, and players like that. It's been a pleasure to be around so many great guys. We talked at the beginning about the, the club that you're joining and, and, and how special it is and all the names in there. And each one of those people started as a, as a young announcer needed to find their way, just like you did. I'm curious, who who most impacted you was, was your mentor kind of when you started your journey? And, and now as, as you look to leave the game and there's so many young announcers, you know, coming up behind you and, and kind of your thoughts on who some of those next real superstars in the booth are going to be. Well, when I was coming up, Dan Kelly was doing the game of the week on CBS, and he did that game that uh, really caught my attention involving the Bruins back in 1970. And, of course, broadcasting the Blues games on KMOX, uh, you could hear his his games across the United States on that clear channel 50,000-watt station. And uh, listening to him, Lloyd Pettit out of Chicago at that point, but I would say Dan Kelly had the biggest influence on me. And uh, it was great to, you know, a real honor to get the chance to chat with him on the brief occasions uh, I had that opportunity. Uh, when I got into the NHL and, and Dan was still alive and doing the uh, Blues games and so forth. Um, as far as the, the young guys now, uh, Brendan Burke really jumps out at me with the Islanders is, is a guy that uh, uh, just has jumped into the league. I know he spent his time. He did his apprenticeship in the American Hockey League and and uh, it served him well. And I think he does a fantastic job with the Islander games and, and the national games that he gets to do. As far as the, the young and up and coming guys, Alex Faust in L.A., I've done some tennis with him at the U.S. Open and gotten to know him that way. But, uh, you know, it's great that he's been able to step in with the Kings in a very tough situation. How are you ever going to follow Bob Miller with the great <laughs> career that Bob has had? Uh, just a couple of guys there that, that kind of jump out that uh, have been relatively new on the scene that I think are going to be big big stars in that, uh, in that area. Bring it to the present day, Rick. Uh, calling games without fans in the stands. That's going to happen. What do you... What's it going to be like for a broadcaster to call games without fans in the stands? What do you miss when the fans aren't there? And is there anything can even be uh, better for a broadcaster or, or, you know, different for a broadcaster without them? Well, it'll definitely be different. It won't be better. Uh, what I've noticed in watching the one of the few live sports that we can enjoy at this stage is the golf. And what I noticed from the first tournament, the Colonial Open a few weeks ago, was that the first hole sounded just like the last hole because that tournament especially had no fans. Now, last week in Cromwell, Connecticut, you know, there's there's fans outside their homes, and, and that's become more the norm, so you can hear people a little bit in the coverage. But it really was incumbent on the announcers 
to drive home the importance of every hole, every stroke, where things stood, add the perspective. I think that's going to be on us because there will be no fans. And, you know, there's a certain amount of audio that we'll be able to, to have on the air from the players and ice level and so forth. But it's really going to be on us to put things into perspective and to generate that excitement with our voices and, and how we're calling games. And the fans are such a, a big advantage for us uh, when, you know, the intensity of playoff hockey builds from game to game and round to round, uh, you know, it just carries itself. It makes it easy for the announcer. So we're it, just not having any of that is <laughs> just going to be very difficult to get used to when we get started. What do you think, and I'm going to put you on the spot here, you know, Tampa Bay, the Lightning are going to be probably one of the favorites. They're in the they're in the round robin portion. They don't have to play that best of five series, so they're just playing for seeding for when we start uh, the first round of the playoffs. But obviously, last year was a disappointment. What do you see in this Tampa Bay team after a long break, where they were allowed to get healthy, as far as what their their opportunity is in in the tournament that we're going to hopefully start in uh, a month or so. Well, I, I think there's a determination there. And granted, you know, I have not had the opportunity to be around any of the players and through any of this. But, you know, you read the reports, you know that I don't know specifically every player who's been there for all of these workouts building up to uh, the opening of training camp, which we still hope is uh, July the 10th. But they've had great attendance for that. And what we have learned is you know, they're very, very determined to erase what happened last year and very determined to be ready for anything that might come their way. I think there is an advantage for teams coming out of the play-in rounds, which obviously, as one of the seeded teams, the Lightning will face one of those teams uh, in the fact that they've been playing life-or-death, high-pressure, best-of-five series, and you know, certainly you want to be able to ramp up your game. You want to be able to ramp up your ability to find your game at critical moments. And I think whoever they face, and the same goes for Philly, Washington, and Boston in the East, um, you know, you're, you're going to have a team that is kind of a step ahead of you maybe as far as that's concerned. The round-robin games, let's face it, that was just a way to find something interesting to get their attention to get some ice time and to get some games and hopefully you find your systems a little bit, but they do not have a lot of pressure attached to them. So uh, I think that they're aware of that, ready for that. That's kind of what hit them last year when Columbus was so scintillating hot down the stretch of the season and playing for their lives every night. And the lightning of course, were, you know, trying to see if they could get to a record number of wins and points. It wasn't necessarily about, toning their game for the playoffs. So uh, I think they're very much aware of that challenge. And uh, the fact that uh, Stamkos will be healthy, the defense who was pretty banged up going into the pause is going to be healthy once again. A full lineup, uh, a deeper lineup with the additions that uh, Julian Brisebois made at the deadline with Barkley, Goodrow, and Bogosian and Coleman coming on. Uh, I think it's going to make them a force when we get around to, to getting things going here. Rick, I couldn't agree more. I think they will be a force, and uh, you've been a force in broadcasting for 42 years. Congratulations again on the Foster Hewitt Memorial Award. Uh, Well-deserved, and thanks so much for hopping on with us. 
It's been a great pleasure to be with you guys. Thanks very much, Dan and Sean. I look forward to seeing you when we're you know, allowed to and we start to get back to normal and, and get things rolling here with the, uh, with the season. Thank Rick for jumping on with us. And, and we certainly do hope that we get to see some games and hear Rick at least a little bit more um, when the NHL returns to play. And, and before we wrap, Sean, I wanted to bring up a point here that we see so much going on in, you know, with the NHL and the NHLPA, and there's a lot of talk about a CBA and the return to play protocols and training camp and all that. I think the one big takeaway I have from all this is these two sides are working together. They're working in unison and they're trying to work for the greater good of the league and the sport. We see things in baseball right now that it's, it's not happening that way. And there's a lot of animosity and we've been there in the NHL. There's no question about it a few times, but I just, I'm just so uh, appreciative and I, and I guess hopeful because I'm seeing the two sides working together the way they are right now. Look, it's great. And it's a necessity. You can't be at loggerheads, you know, as you try and recover from a, a pandemic and from your whole world socially, economically, everything being turned on its head. If in whatever you're doing, society, your town, your family, the league, if you're not working together in the face of the greatest crisis of our lifetimes, what are you doing, right? You, this is yeah. what has to be done. And, and the thing that struck me the most is when, if this all gets done and when this all gets done, there's going to be a book in this, in the amount of stuff you know, they're talking about extending the CBA, uh, you know, putting all kinds of things into that, as well as this return to play. When when we can walk away and look at this in three years, when we're hopefully back to normal, you won't be able to comprehend what was done in, in two months time by, by the people that run the league, run the PA, all the people everywhere else who have put this together, put hub cities together, put, you know, return to play protocols together. The the amount of work and, and the creativity that's been exhibited in the last two months, it, it's almost mind blowing. Yeah. And, and what's so fascinating to me too, and, and this has been a report we've seen from Elliot Friedman from Sportsnet and Pierre Lebrun from TSN and The Athletic is along with these CBA discussions is the topic of the Olympics being part of these dis labor discussions and, and the return of NHL players to the Olympics. We'll see. I mean, there's still nothing official on that yet, but I mean, from the league point of being staunchly against it from the players, we all know they want it. The fact that there's potential for that again, again, is just another sign of how they are working together to come up with a, with a plan that, that benefits everybody and gives everybody a little piece of everything that they want well and i think again that's it like you, you need to give to get and i think everybody understands that nobody nobody's going to walk away from this in any walk of life with everything they want right you're going to have to have given something to get something and what everybody wants more than anything is to get back to normal and and the quickest way to get back to normal is to compromise and and figure out a way that everybody's least affected. And and to me, that's kind of been the driving force of all the developments we've seen. So, you know, we, we kind of walk forward. We hope the training camp start on July 10th. It might be a few days later as they try and negotiate all this. But, you know, we're going to get through the July 4th weekend. We're going to celebrate our country, uh, the United States. We're both here in the United States. I know we have a lot of Canada listeners, and they're celebrating yep. Canada Day today. So I want to wish, today. Yeah. wish them all a, a happy Canadian Day. My wife is uh, from a Canadian family, so we're celebrating a little here as well. 
but you know we'll come back next week and we'll hopefully be that much closer to hockey and 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 to doing what we all love to do so i know i'm going to enjoy this weekend fire up the grill a little bit try and make it as normal as possible and then hopefully very soon hockey will be as normal as possible you and me both we'll all be doing it everybody should be doing something like that if you're listening out there so Another great episode. Uh, look forward to doing it again next week, Sean. And maybe we'll have some extra news to talk about too. Absolutely, Dan. Enjoy the long holiday weekend. This is this podcast is perfect holiday weekend companion piece. Sit out on your deck, have a beverage, listen to the show, rate, review, and come back next week for an even better show. <laughs>